Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. The themes for the readings of um, the waning um, weeks of ordinary time uh, have to do with the last things, what's called in overeducated theology, eschatology. Uh, and um, because next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent and hence the opening of the new Christian year, technically that's our New Year's. Advent focuses on first things, right? So we're at that fulcrum between last things and first things. This Sunday today is a bridge between the close and opening of the liturgical rhythms of the Christian year. So our focus today are going to be try to help build the bridge between the last series of talks you've been having here at Sojourner Grace Collective, namely about resistance to empire and bridging that to the new series that uh, Colby and friends will be uh, focusing on during Advent, which is the theme of incarnation. Slide, please. Now, in this Revised Common Lectionary, the gospel text for the week is Matthew 25, 31 to 46, which you can kind of see, but if you want to see it better, good seats are still available in front. Uh, Now, this is Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, and Elaine's going to read it out loud to you. When the human human one comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by God, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, yeah, this is a story about judgment, but it's a parable, everybody, so relax. Uh, We shouldn't reduce it to simplistic doctrine or theology. In fact, at the plain meaning of this story, it's a rather stunning description of a royal figure acting like a peasant. You see that? Uh, That is a king acting like a shepherd. That's a a pretty shocking juxtapositioning. After all, shepherds were considered social outcasts in ancient culture. They were poor, often homeless, and seen as unclean because of their symbiotic contact uh, contact with livestock. But of course, the metaphor of uh, comparing a ruler to a shepherd has a long history in the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Bible. What this ruler-slash-shepherd is doing in this story is what any pastoralist would do, namely, keep his different flocks in separate pens or fields. No big thing. But almost immediately, this earthy scenario, parable, is decoded as a metaphorical setup for the moral of the tale, which in fact focuses neither on the shepherd, nor on the king, nor on the animals. 
but rather on the issue of how each one of us relates to poor and marginalized people. So this theme today is a nice follow-on to what many of you did, this TG, in uh, opening up your community to hungry and homeless folk. Slide. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Okay, don't get all intimidated by the picture of Mama T there. This famous litany that ensues is singular in our gospel tradition, and it suggests that the risen Christ somehow mysteriously dwells in the battered bodies of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And moreover, it goes on to suggest that the supreme form of communion with that mysterious Christ is by and through tending to outcast bodies. And in so doing, the text further makes clear, that Christ is anonymous, known only in those inconvenient and difficult bodies. Uh, Something that is repeated now, slide, in verses 37 and 8 for emphasis. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? Bodies which inhabit places of pain and marginality and oppression. In other words, any and all of those forced by all of the formal and informal codes and systems and cultural imperatives of economic and social and spatial and racial apartheid to dwell on the underside of empire and its discontents. This is what Matthew elsewhere throughout his gospel calls the outer darkness. And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So, I don't really know where else we encounter the risen Christ, where that mysterious one may or may not be in our world. But according to this story, the one place that figure is most assuredly present, is in and among the least. Slide. Anybody ever seen this uh, well-known image? Really? Well, now you have. This is called the Christ of the Breadlines. It was an etching by the artist Fritz Eichenberg, a Jewish Catholic refugee from Nazi Germany. And obviously, it was inspired by Matthew 25. Slide. Matthew 25, also animated during the Great Depression, 
these two folks, the socialist Dorothy Day and anarchist Peter Morin, to reimagine Christian faith as fundamentally defined by solidarity with poor folk. So these two started up the Catholic Worker Movement, which today has hundreds of houses around North America and abroad, including Mexico, <laughs> houses which are committed to feeding the hungry and radical hospitality to the dying and the homeless. Slide. Indeed, Fritz Eichenberg's work was adopted by the Catholic Worker Movement, and so you see here uh, at the top the beautiful mural painted on the wall of the Los Angeles Catholic Worker Soup Kitchen, which has been serving on Skid Row in Los Angeles three times a week, almost for 50 years now. Now, the vision of Matthew 25 has also, slide, influenced other Christian movements throughout history, from the 16th century founder of the Mennonite tradition, to which Elaine and I belong, Menno Simons, so you can see his definition of true evangelical faith. You've got to oh, give Menno some love and read love. it out there. Sure. True evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked, it feeds the hungry, it comforts the sorrowful, it shelters the destitute, it serves those that harm it, it binds up that which is wounded, it has become all things to all people. Slide. All the way to the contemporary evangelical initiative called the Matthew 25 movement, which is all about defending undocumented immigrants. And you can find them at this URL. Uh, they are everywhere around the country, including here in Southern California. What all these movements have in common and what Matthew 25 attempts to teach is the indivisibly somatic nature of Christian faith and practice, which is grounded, slide, in a theology of the incarnation. Now, the notion of the divine taking on flesh was as scandalous in antiquity as it is today. But from this core New Testament conviction flows the rationale for protecting and nurturing and defending bodies, indeed all of life. The most famous articulation click, of this in our New Testament is, of course, John 1.14, and the word literally became a body. But Matthew 25 argues that the incarnation was not limited to the birth or life of Jesus. In fact, it continues on such that the risen Christ is still present in the bodies of those who suffer. The word is flesh in the folks that you had Thanksgiving dinner with on Thursday. Slide. There is, of course, a long and sordid counter-history to this tradition of incarnation, a tradition declared heretical by the councils of the early church, but nevertheless one that has flourished right up until today. It's called docetism. And it was the assertion that God could not really have become flesh because the spiritual is holy and the material is corrupt. 
This dualism was taken from Hellenistic philosophy way back in the day, but it has persisted through the ages in various forms. And I think it's not an understatement to say that much or most of Protestant pietism is functionally today docetic. That is, always trumping the somatic with the spiritual, believing that salvation is otherworldly. You know, the folks who say, Sex is evil, save it for someone you love. Uh, or it's okay if we destroy the planet by nuclear war or climate change because our home is in heaven. Which is why Matthew 25 is so important to hear again and again and again and why Lexi has a piece of art in her apartment reminding her of these imperatives. Slide. Tending to bodies is the essence of the theology of the Incarnation, but how is that connected to empire? Here is an interesting historical note regarding Matthew 25. The text you're looking at up there was generated some two centuries before our Gospels were written, but notice that it voices a very similar, in fact, almost identical litany. It comes from the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, which is a great example of intertestamental apocalyptic literature. That means the, the stuff that was written between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. These were Jewish writings of resistance to the Hellenistic Empire. That was the empire that preceded the Roman Empire. Notice how it's written with an autobiographical eye, testifying to the fact that during this period and in every period of empire since, the author's people were those who were routinely enslaved, imprisoned, isolated, and suffered deprivation. So here is the same conviction reflected in Matthew 25. God stands in unique and intimate solidarity with anyone and everyone whose bodies are violated by empire. Slide. Now, however else we might try to define empire, and I know that Colby has refrained from offering a definition of empire in his series, it is certainly understood to be that matrix of power that wages war on the bodies of the outsider, the enemy, and the outcast, both abroad and at home. In counterpoint, divine solidarity with these bodies, uh, Dakota men in the mass, the largest mass execution in the history of the U.S., endemic poverty all around the United States, prisoners, or just the black body of Michael Brown lying in the streets of Ferguson. Solidarity with these bodies, the vision that was expressed so long ago by Jewish resistors to Hellenism, and again two centuries later in Matthew's Gospel in resistance to Rome, and then recovered by movements throughout the history of the church, including this one. This is not a call to practice obligatory charity to the unfortunate, an unfortunate term if ever there were, as a way of somehow guaranteeing our place in heaven. No, it's a challenge to stand with the criminalized, the outcast, the racial ethnic other, to stand for justice. Incarnational faith is about tending to and defending vulnerable bodies and thereby communing with a God who inhabits them, usually without us knowing it. 
But how do we embrace this challenge? This is probably best illustrated through a couple of stories about ordinary people like us who rose to extraordinary personal and political witness by tending to the bodies of the violated, even those of their enemies. So I want to tell two stories this morning. And both of them are from interviews that I did um, to write this book. And it's called The Ambassadors of Reconciliation. And there are nine testimonies in here of, again, folks just like us, faced with extraordinary difficult um, situations and choosing um, to be extraordinary people. And thus, we have named them Ambassadors of Reconciliation. Are you going to do the slide part? I'll do the slide, yeah. He'll do the slide because I will get lost in these stories. Marietta Yeager's journey is marked by tragedy and agonizing grief. Yet, with her moral authority as the mother of a murder victim, she challenges all of us to disarm our hearts and practice forgiveness. On June 25, 1973, Marietta's seven-year-old daughter, Susie, was kidnapped during a family camping trip in Montana. For 15 months, they knew nothing of Susie's whereabouts. Marietta told me, I was catapulted into a very intense spiritual journey. Initially, I was willing to kill the kidnapper with my bare hands for taking my little girl and because of the terrible effect it had on my entire family. And so I made a year-long commitment to daily wrestle with God about forgiveness, justice, mercy, and love. Many, many people were praying for me, and it was a very long, gradual process. But during that year, I came to realize three things. One, in staying full of rage, I was in fact handing my power over to the kidnapper, allowing his actions to change my value system. Two, and this is a hard one, in God's eyes, the kidnapper was just as precious as my little girl. And three, if I wanted to live my Catholic faith with integrity, I was called to forgive my enemies. I eventually realized that I needed to forgive the kidnapper for the sake of myself and everyone who touched my life. And because I believe in a God who never violates our freedom or our free will, I gave God permission to change my heart. And by the time we found out what had happened to Susie, the miracle of forgiveness had been accomplished in my spirit. On the one-year anniversary of the abduction, the kidnapper called Marietta, taunting her. But Marietta disarmed him by expressing concern that his actions must have placed a terrible burden on his soul. He was taken aback and began to cry. He talked with Marietta for over an hour, revealing enough information about himself for the FBI to identify and find him. And so at last, Marietta learned the painful details of what had happened to her daughter. A few months after Susie was buried, a local church contacted Marietta and asked her to speak about how her faith had sustained her through the ordeal. 
This opened the door to many other invitations through which Marietta met other murder victim family members, as well as people working in different areas of social justice. Marietta explained, through my interactions with various activists, I began to make the connection between my personal stance toward the man who had taken Susie's life and our nation's stance towards its enemies. I never would have been complicit in my little, death's, my little girl's death. How could I then be silent about the violence of the death penalty my government was pursuing in my name and with my tax dollars? Now my primary work is to help people understand forgiveness and its broader applications. We degrade and dehumanize ourselves by practicing capital punishment, and we put ourselves in the same mindset as the murderer. In 1997, Marietta co-founded Journey of Hope, which has been on the forefront of the abolitionist movement. Each year, they organize a speaking tour through a state that executes people. Marietta explains, we address every venue that is open to a discussion of our perspective on the death penalty. We have a few people that speak about statistics as well as relevant state and federal government legislation, but most of us, our speakers, are people like me who share our personal stories of violence and how and why we got to the point of opposing the death penalty. She continued, well-meaning people who recognize the fallibility, inefficacy, and financial waste of the death penalty will say, but we need it as a matter of justice for the victim's families. We can respond like no one else can, that no retaliatory executions will compensate us for what we have lost or restore our loved ones to our arms. And in fact, we insult the inestimable value of our loved one's memory by becoming that which we abhor, people who kill people. We have to aspire to a higher moral principle that is more befitting the goodness and innocence of our loved one's lives, one that claims all life is sacred and worthy of preservation. Then Marietta paused and took a deep breath. I will never condone the killing of another chained, defenseless person, such as my daughter was. Let us not produce yet another victim and another grieving family. Through the years, Marietta has continued to work with victims of violence, telling her story and encouraging them to find healing and wholeness. She's also traveled all over the world with her speaking ministry, and her primary work is to help people understand forgiveness, and in particular, to invite Christians to practice the difficult scriptural exhortation to love our enemies. She relayed to me. As Christians, we're called to love our enemies, but most pimply, people simply dismiss this comment. We associate the word love with warm fuzzies and claim we, were, we will never feel that way to, towards the person who hurt or violated us. But I came to understand is that the love of enemies God calls us to 
is a love that desires God's best for that person and a willingness to help them if we can. Every, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are making a covenant with God. God, forgive me my sins the way I forgive those who have sinned against me. I try to encourage people by admitting that on my own, I could not rise to this prayer. I wanted to kill the person who kidnapped Susie. But God knows we are vulnerable and hurting and loves us too much to give us principles to live by only to leave us helpless to do so. The power of the Holy Spirit is available to us so we can be the people that God has called us to be and do the things that faith requires us to do. In the year following Susie's disappearance, Marietta reached a point where she was ready to give up her belief in God because of the many mitigating circumstances of the night Susie was taking, taken. And she wondered why. Why would a loving God allow this? These questions churned in her mind and she began to doubt whether God existed. But the more her reasoning moved in that direction, her spirit was saying, wait, I need the hope that God gives. God is the only one I can count on in this situation. And she described an image that she had. I was being pushed to the edge of a precipice, looking down and seeing that it was bottomless, dark and terrifying. Instinctively, I knew that I had to make an act of faith in a God that I couldn't see, hear, feel, or understand. And so I did. And at that moment, I had a powerful, mystical experience of being in the presence of God. Without my faith, I would not have survived the agonizing months after Susie was abducted, or the trauma of learning about the depravity and torture she was subjected to. My faith gives me the consolation of knowing that whatever violence happened to Susie, it is not her reality now. Susie went on to a glorious place and celebrates life in the arms of God. This was confirmed for me a number of years ago when I was with my mother during the last week of her life. A couple of days before mom died, she woke in the middle of the night and saw Susie dancing at the foot of her bed waving and saying, pretty soon, Grandma, we will be together again. That is the image I hold of Susie. More recently, Marietta co-founded Murder Victim Families for Human Rights, in which capacity she has testified before the United Nations Human Rights Commission. She has also been selected in Robert Shetterly's Americans Who Tell the Truth, portrait series, joining such women as Rosa Parks, Dorothy Day, and Kathy Kelly. If Marietta Yeager's journey began as a private struggle that evolved into political action, Myrna Betke's story began with a spectacularly public crime to which she offered a deeply personal response. The abduction and torture of Marietta's daughter took place in secret. But the whole world witnessed the killing of thousands of people in the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Towers.
and one of those victims was Myrna's brother. Myrna told me, I watched in numbing horror the unfolding events of that Tuesday as plane after plane crashed, wondering when will this end. I did not know in their, those first few moments just how personal this tragedy was to become. My family joined all of those you saw on the news, posting pictures of my brother on the streets of New York, visiting the area hospitals. It was on Thursday that we received confirmation that my youngest brother, Bill, was on the 95th floor of the first tower hit in the direct path of Flight 11. The only official confirmation of his death to, to this day is his silence. While the 9-11 attack was used as a call to war by the leaders of our nation, some of the family members of those killed made poignant pleas that violence not be done in their loved ones' names and instead turned their grief into actions for peace. Myrna was among them. Before 9-11, Myrna would not have described herself as a peace activist. She was a pastor of Freehold United Methodist Church, Church in New Jersey, just outside of New York City. After the attack, her church opened their doors for all who wanted to come to pray. In our interview, she shared, it felt like we as a church knew what to do. We gathered for worship on that very Tuesday evening. It was the place and time for raw emotions, grief and rage. We lifted our anger up to God and shook our fists. We needed a place and a biblical context for grieving and raging. The next night we came together again and we spoke of healing and shared communion. Once these immediate needs were taken care of, I found myself longing to make a response that would work towards redemption and restoration. I was fairly certain at that point that we were going to start bombing Afghanistan, and I asked myself, what can I personally do to stop this? Myrna continued, on October 7th, the bombing began. It was my brother Bill's birthday. And that year it also happened to be Worldwide Communion Sunday. The reality that the bombing would lead to civilian death was deeply troubling to many of us. We had the experience of firsthand searching through the rubble for our loved ones. We did not want to pass that to others. Because the war was being waged in their names, some 9-11 families organized themselves into a non-profit group called September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. You see the quote here from Martin Luther King Jr. that inspired their name. They united in a determination that the death of their loved ones should not be a cause for more killing, and they committed to seek alternatives to war and working to end the cycle of violence. Talk about turning over tables. Thank you for that song this morning. The group represents more than 100 family members of September 11th victims and has subsequently been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. In June of 2002, Myrna was invited to go to Afghanistan as part of an interfaith clergy group. The delegation focused on identifying ways in which the faith community 
could support humanitarian projects in Kabul, including the rebuilding of schools, clinics, mosques, destroyed during the US-led bombing campaign. Myrna describes that experience. One of the most powerful moments in Afghanistan was spending time with a beautiful little girl named Amina. We spent the day together, playing and drawing pictures. Then I learned her story. One morning, Amina, who was eight years old, had gotten up to make tea for her family. She was in the back of the house getting water when a bomb hit the front half of the house. Amina lost her entire family in that instant. She is the only survivor. When she spoke to our group, she stood and listed all the names of her family members who had been killed. I found myself thinking, no eight-year-old child should have to do this. As I was listening to Amina, a memory came flooding back. About two weeks after 9-11, I was talking with my father on the phone when he was interrupted by the state police. He said, the police just arrived and they want me to give a DNA sample. I felt so horrible that my father had to do that in order to identify his son. In Afghanistan, these two events powerfully came together and it became clear to me that we are all called to build a world in which parents and children do not have to name their dead in this way. After Myrna re returned from Afghanistan, she was invited to speak at a Shiite mosque in her community in New Jersey. She explained, the Shias have a long history of lament tradition. And after I spoke, a woman of the mosque came up to me crying, saying, we thought only the poetry of Arabic could express our lament. But today, you taught us that you can lament in English as well. I am very grateful for my ongoing relationship with the people at this mosque and consider it one of the blessings that came out of the tragedy of 9-11. After the attacks of September 11th, Methodist layman George Bush modeled the classic response of retribution, personalizing the evil of 9-11 in Osama bin Laden and launching massive retaliatory strikes against a country simply because bin Laden was resident there. On the other hand, Methodist pastor Betke modeled a creative, restorative response, taking personal responsibility by choosing to stand in solidarity with victims of war on the other side. Matthew 25. I want to close by noting one more story that is very local. The man you're looking at here was one of my mentors, the late Roberto Martinez. He worked tirelessly on immigrant human rights in and around San Diego. Roberto introduced me to the tough landscape of these borderlands from the sweaty maquiladoras to the canyons where farm workers live in caves and plastic tents in the shadow of trophy homes. Roberto became legendary for his documentation of border patrol abuses ranging from
from verbal abuse to illegal confiscation of documents, the deportation of legal residents to maimings, rapes, and deaths in custody. Always looking for fresh ways to communicate the stories he saw daily. Roberto wondered 25 years ago whether perhaps a posada, that traditional Mexican form of community pageantry at Christmas that dramatizes the Holy Family's search for lodging. Any of you ever been to a posada? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he said, what if we did a posada at the border fence to recontextualize the bitter drama of immigrant homelessness? So began uh, almost a quarter century now of the Posada Sin Fronteras, Posada Without Borders, in which people gather from both sides of that border wall to commemorate that traditional litany between the casero, the innkeeper, and his hard-heartedness. That would be the American side. And the Santa Familia, the holy family, asking for compassion and hospitality. It's a poignant moment in which we celebrate what it means to be a body with a wall running right through the heart of the congregation, just as it runs right through the heart of our church and our nation. The innkeeper's voice saying, Ya se pueden ir y no molestar. Go away. Don't bother us. Becomes poignantly tragic to recite on this side of that border fence as Border Patrol officers stand sternly by. So Elaine and I try every few years to get down from Ventura to the Posada Sin Fronteras. It's a place where we can truly celebrate the incarnation by being together in a body, being mindful of immigrant bodies. I was an immigrant, and you welcomed me. Matthew 25. As we said at the beginning, this Sunday is a bridge between your reflections on empire and your embrace of Advent. So the reign of Christ Sunday today stands as suspended between the end and the new beginning of the liturgical Christian year. But if you think about it, the story is the same. Matthew's gospel begins with the tale of how Jesus began life fleeing imperial violence as a political refugee, Matthew 1 and 2. And in our text today, the gospel's last parable concludes by challenging us to see Christ in the bodies of those who are cast out undocumented, and scapegoated. So, not all of us can muster the courage of a Marietta Yeager or a Myrna Betke, but we can roll on down in three weeks to Border Field State Park to participate in this amazing public liturgy that is one of your gems here in San Diego. So we hope that some of you, maybe even all y'all as a congregation, might consider joining this year's Posada on December 16th because there's just something about putting our bodies with other bodies in political space 
in a conflicted border zone that brings the gospel story alive. And who knows? We just might see Jesus there peeking through the fences from the other side. Amen. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.